Hi there, I'm Chloe Veltman and welcome to Voicebox, your weekly guide on public radio and podcast to singing and the best of the vocal music scene. Thanks for joining me. It's election season, as if you hadn't noticed, and voters here in the US are essentially faced with two options. This... So in love Or this... Oh, beautiful for spacious skies, for amber waves of grain, for purple mountains' majesty above the fruited plain. It's fair to say that election songs have come a long way since this country elected its first president in 1789. On tonight's show, we're going to explore the development and role of singing in political campaigns in the United States. And my guest is the ever-thoughtful composer and arts commentator, Brian Rosen. Hi, Brian. Thanks for joining me on Voicebox once again. Thanks for having me again. I love it being here. So our journey into the world of campaign songs starts here. This famous tune would later become the melody for My Country Tis of Thee. But before that, fans of presidential nominee George Washington repurposed the melody, which was at the time best known as the tune for the British national anthem God Save the King, to rally the country behind its new leader. Brian, please could you read some of the lyrics for us? Yes. God save great Washington, fair freedom's noble son, born to command. May every enemy far from his presence flee and be grim tyranny bound by his hand. Wow. Thank you very much. Yes. Thanks, Brian. That was beautifully done. Thank you. Well, the irony is so great there uh, because, of course, this is God save the king mm-hmm. uh, and and George Washington being something of an anti-monarchist, at least in theory. Uh, and here we are basically just repurposing that song and just replacing the king with, of course, great Washington. So the irony there is huge. But don't you think there's uh, there's some sort of political weight to it too? They're cocking a snook at the English by purposefully ripping their song and doing what they want with it. Um, you know, I, I think that's probably that was less in their mind. I think um, I, you they know, just that, weren't very creative. That, well, what it comes <laughs> down to is they they want songs that people recognize, and yeah. the colonists were pretty darn familiar with this song. Um, <laughs> and but you might be right. There may be some sort of you know snootiness there, saying like, hey, yeah, uh, we're taking your song and we're sort of 
of like replacing it with Washington. Um, so there might have been some of that because certainly the colonists did did know that song pretty darn well. Right. Well, okay. I have a big opening question for you, Brian. How did we get from God Save Great Washington to Obama and Romney doing bits of karaoke to win voters' hearts? Well, I think it comes down to uh, the evolution of the role of the campaign song over history. Uh, and, and really, what the big thing that changed was technology. But at the time, back in these days, you know, one of the ways you could get an idea across uh, the country was to set it to a song. Um, mm -hmm. You know, back in the day, people would actually sing together and they would have these campaign rallies and they would all get together and there would be choirs and, and they would teach these songs. And these campaign songs were really a way of, of packaging your candidate uh, through lyrics mm -hmm. um, and, and probably an, an existing tune, a catchy tune that people already knew. And then basically by, by writing these lyrics, these little slogans uh, and, and spreading them around the country, you basically would get the actual population of the United States spouting your talking points for you. <laughs> How how was the music disseminated? I mean, there weren't recordings. Uh, there actually were songbooks. They would um, they would sort of write up the songbooks and they would um, distribute them to uh, the different colonies and like on street corners. Kind uh, of? Sometimes with street corners, but so it was, it was more often actual rallies, I believe, mm -hmm. um, where they would you know the the people in charge of the campaigns would get the printed material over to the the, the various rallies and teach them to the uh, the choirs that were out there, the singers, and and have a big old sing along. And that's what that's that's what campaigns were at the time. So one of the most successful campaign songs of all time is Tippecanoe and Tyler Too, which is the famous 1840 election song of a not-so-famous president, William Henry Harrison. What can you tell us about this song, Brian? Um, it was uh, really uh, sort of like the, the, a huge political song and a real change and sort of the first one that really took the entire nation by storm. They, often people say that, like, what... The Marseille was to France is pretty much exactly what this Tippecanoe and Tyler II song was, which was called Tip and Tie at the time, I believe. Mm -hmm. um, this just sort of took over the entire country. It was incredibly successful. Uh, and it was based on this um, sort of like a, this minstrel song called Little Pigs that we don't know much about the actual song. Huh. Uh, but the... Um, the the sort of turning it into this wonderful that that phrase tippecanoe and Tyler too it just rolls right off the tongue it's this great euphony sounds like a nursery rhyme to me yeah it kind of does which is probably why it was so catchy and people just dug it if you actually listen to the song though um, it's it's kind of strange to our ears uh, it has this strange repeated um, line like uh, throughout the commotion motion motion and it's this <laughs> strange feel that you we, in contemporary songs now you would never have that sort of repeated motion motion motion, motion. And then they talk about van, right? Um, um, uh, and together we'll beat little van, van, van. Van is a used up man. Yeah, they're talking about Martin Van Buren. Yeah, who was devastated by this campaign. Um, another interesting thing about it is like the, they're actually really calling out Martin Van Buren, right? They're calling him a used up man. Mm -hmm. And could you imagine a candidate, could you imagine like a modern candidate referring to their opponent as a used up man? Yeah, I kind of can. Yeah, but but through doing this, this really clever thing, they're basically getting like thousands of other Americans calling him a used up man. I mean, they, they get the, these people like, to be mouthpieces of the campaign, it's which amazing. is an amazing thing. Well, Martin Van Buren, for his part, lashed out against Tippecanoe with his own slandering election song, didn't he? Yeah, there was there, there was a trying to paint William Henry Harrison as a as a sort of alcoholic uh, who basically just makes distilled hard cider um, in his <laughs> log cabin and. and 
and so they sort of betrayed him as this sort of drunkard out there. And he, they wrote this song. Um, uh, it was uh, set to the tune of "Rockin' by Baby." Again, a very uh-huh. common song. "Rockin' by Baby." When you awake, you will discover Tip is a fake. Ooh. Far from the battle, war cry and drum, he sits in his cabin, a drinking bad rum. So it's like a little bit of swift boating right there. saying like, nah, he didn't really. That Tip a canoe thing. That wasn't anything, right? I mean, he was just sitting around drinking rum that he made, which wasn't even any good. But I guess that uh, his rockabye baby version didn't make too much of a dent. I mean, in comparison to Tippecanoe, which became this huge phenomenon in yeah, its day. It, it didn't quite didn't quite push him over the edge, and, and Harrison ended up winning, and then unfortunately was assassinated shortly afterwards. Right. Gosh, sad. no more songs yeah. for Harrison. But so what extent do you think Tippecanoe helped to seal Harrison's success? I mean, do you think that the song was really important to his campaign back then? Could he have won without the song? It's hard to know. Um, it certainly had it had a huge effect. I mean, all of a sudden, everybody was singing it. Um, I, I have to imagine that it had a considerable effect, but you would sort of have to talk to a political scientist about that. Right, sure. Well, let's listen to a version of Tippecanoe and Tyler 2. We're going to hear a performance by They Might Be Giants. <laughs> If you've just joined us, welcome. This is Voicebox with me, Chloe Veltman. To find out more about Voicebox, please visit voicebox-media.org and please check out our free podcasts on the website or via iTunes. Tonight, composer and blogger Brian Rosen joins me for a look at election songs and the role of singing in presidential campaigns. We just heard a version of Tippy Canoe and Tyler Two performed by the rock band They Might Be Giants. The track comes from William Henry Harrison's successful bid for the presidency against Martin Van Buren in 1840. Let's turn now to a not-so-successful campaign song from the 19th century. Incumbent John Quincy Adams had a hard time trying to win votes against his popular rival Andrew Jackson in 1828. Brian, was Adams' campaign song Little Know Ye Who's Coming simply not catchy enough? What was the song about and why did it fail to win voters' hearts? Uh, it, I mean, it's a great song. It's this this amazing apocalyptic vision of what's going to happen if somehow you don't vote for John Quincy Adams. If, if God forbid, heaven help this country, if Andrew Jackson ends up winning because little know ye who's coming. Uh, and that's little, little know ye what's coming. And it's, it's just a great, I love it. I think it's like, what's coming? Fire's coming. Swords is coming. Pistols, guns, and knives is coming. Famine's coming. Banning's coming. If John Quincy not be coming, which I'm, I'm the ultimate in like fear mongering mm-hmm. in a song. Yeah, it's really powerful fire and brimstone stuff, isn't it? Yeah, it really is. Well, let's listen now to a recording of Little Know Ye Who's Coming by Tim Carey of Trusty Sidekick. Little Know Ye. Little know ye 
On Voicebox tonight, we're exploring election songs with Brian Rosen, a composer and arts blogger based here in the Bay Area. I'm Chloe Veltman. We just heard a recording of Little Know Ye Who's Coming, an election song from the political campaign of John Quincy Adams in 1828. The performance was by Tim Carey of Trustee Sidekick, a Massachusetts-based rock band. Brian, we've heard two performances by contemporary rock bands of very old political songs. Why do you think they might be giants or trusty sidekick would be interested in out-of-date material like Tippy Canoe and Tyler Two and Little Know Ye Who's Coming? Well, certainly They Might Be Giants have a long history of taking quirky bits of uh, Americana or older songs and, and repurposing in their own sort of quirky ways. If you look at their, you know, one of their first hits was, uh, you know, Istanbul, not Constantinople, which was, you know, an old sort of music box song that they sort of updated. Um, and, and also they, they have a lot of crossover with sort of American history and education. They do a lot of work with PBS and, um, and sort of take science topics and sort of write little songs about them. So it's, it's really very much in keeping. Um, and it's such a quirky song anyway for them to sort of pick up and do. I, I think it really suits their, their character very well. Do you think there's a place for these old election songs in contemporary political campaigns? Um, well, I mean, the, the contemporary way of using music has changed so much. It's sort of... Um, it's hard to imagine that really working so well. And also the sentiments are so um, so bald-faced. I mean, like there's nothing, there's no trace of subtlety or irony in any of these things. <laughs> just like, hey, you know, you vote for your candidate and you're basically your entire world's going to blow up. Um, <laughs> it, it just doesn't play all that well in, in today's society where, where you know, culture's moved on. Well, we're going to move forward into the 20th century very soon, but I'd just like to take a little pit stop in the 19th century to talk about the campaign songs of Abraham Lincoln, one of this country's greatest presidents. And uh, one of the reasons he was able to become great is probably because he had a couple of wonderful election songs to help him on his way with his campaign for both of his uh, elections that he won. In 1860, there was the song Lincoln and Liberty that was written by Jesse Hutchinson of the Family Singers. And uh, we're going to hear a version in a moment performed by Ronnie Gilbert. And then in 1864, he had the song The Battle Cry of Freedom, which was by George S. Root. And we'll hear it in a version performed by the 97th Regimental String Band. Band, which, believe it or not, has singing in it. Hurrah for the choice of the nation, our chieftains so brave and so true. We'll go for the great reformation, for Lincoln and liberty too. We'll go for the son of Kentucky, the hero of Hoosier and through. The suckers so lucky for Lincoln and Liberty, too. Then up with the banner so glorious, the We 
We just heard two songs from both of Abraham Lincoln's successful political campaigns. The first was from 1860. It was Lincoln and Liberty, which was written by Jesse Hutchison of the Family Singers. And in this version, we heard it performed by Ronnie Gilbert. And then we heard the Lincoln campaign song from 1864, The Battle Cry of Freedom by George S. Root. And the performance was by the 97th Regimental String Band. Brian, so let's talk a little bit about the Franklin Delano Roosevelt campaign and the campaign song that was used there. It's interesting because it demonstrates a sort of a transition between what election songs did in the 19th century and what they would then go on to do. Yeah, at this point, we were starting to move into the era of broadcasting and recording. Uh, So they were able to sort of take this song, um, Happy Days Are Here Again, uh, and sort of have that be the theme for FDR's campaign. And there's a real big change there uh, because before we were listening to songs that the lyrics were saying specific things about the candidates uh, and about the candidates, the, the opponents of the candidates. And now we're moving to something where it's it's less about bringing political messages about individuals and more about sort of setting a tone, uh, setting a tone for the campaign. In this case, a very optimistic tone. Happy days are here again after our depression. Um, you're associating the candidate with this feeling of hope. Uh, and that's, that's a big shift. Well, let's hear the song now. Box tonight, we're exploring election songs with Brian Rosen, a composer and arts blogger based here in the Bay Area. I'm Chloe Veltman. We just heard a recording of Happy Days Are Here Again, an election campaign song of Franklin Delano Roosevelt. So a huge technological advance in the shape of recorded sound had a transformative effect on the way in which election songs were created and used. Brian, how did the phonograph and other recording technologies impact campaigning songs? Well, two ways, mostly. Um, One thing that happened was that people kind of stopped singing for themselves. Mm. Um, If you have the ability to um, have pre-recorded sound uh, going on in your campaign, you would do that. Why you don't hire a you don't have a local choir going and singing at your rallies. You just sort of like pipe in music that already exists. Mm -hmm. Um, So and also people stopped singing. Uh, They didn't have to. It used to be that people would if they wanted to have music, they had to make it themselves. Uh, And now with the phonograph and pre-recorded music, you don't have to do that so much. The whole tradition of sort of these songbooks that were being spread out through the country uh, lost lost their way. I mean, there's no there's no way of getting virality that way. People wouldn't do them. And yet, you know, we still had this tradition of election songs all the way through the 20th century. In the middle of the 20th century, for example, you get these fantastic examples of musical celebrities writing election songs for candidates they support. Um, Irving Berlin penned They Like Ike for Eisenhower and Frank Sinatra changed the lyrics of the song High Hopes in support of John F. Kennedy. Brian, what did it mean for the campaigns of these two candidates to have songs from such famous musical stars? Well, certainly you have a bit of celebrity... Um, you know, uh, celebrities standing up for their candidates gives them some sort of bump in popularity. Uh, and this is, again, technology allowed for 
recording media to sort of create this sort of celebrity that hadn't existed quite so much uh, in the past. Uh, so the very notion of celebrity sort of creates this idea that celebrity can be lent to help these politicians. Um, and then you also have still the continuing idea of like, okay, we're going to take these songs that people already like and then change the lyrics a bit uh, to, to make them talk about that candidate in particular. Yeah. Well, um, the Irving Berlin one is kind of interesting, too, because that was a song that he had originally written sort of in honor of Eisenhower, but it wasn't for an election. It was written for a musical, right? Yeah, it was in Call Me Madam, and it was They Like Ike. And then, you know, during the campaign, he tweaked the lyrics a little bit to make it, you know, I like Ike. Um, and, you know, that spawned a slogan, you know, one of the more enduring slogans in the entire history of the country. Yeah, it was very popular, right? That oh, song. yeah. 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 Huh. And the Sinatra one, too. Yeah, well, that was already a song that was very popular. And then all of a sudden you have, you know, Sinatra's huge celebrity and him being able to lend that to the whole sort of like Camelot feel of, of uh, John F. Kennedy just sort of, you know, went over the top there. So what have been the advantages for a presidential candidate in having a song specifically written for him versus co-opting an existing song to suit his campaign? Um, well, again, in these cases, they're not really particularly written for the candidate. I mean, most of the time they're taking songs that are already popular. And so there's really not much of an advantage to having an original song written for the candidate, um, unless it's an incredibly good song, which mm -hmm. is you know kind of rarely the case. You're much better off taking a song that has already proven itself to be successful and catchy and people already know it, uh, and then sort of like leveraging off of that and, and to, to get your message spread out there. Well, here's Frank Sinatra with High Hopes, the John F. Kennedy version, and I Like Ike, a song in support of Dwight Eisenhower by Irving Berlin. Everyone is voting for Jack Cause he's got what all the rest lack Everyone wants to back Jack Jack is on the right track Cause he's got high hopes He's got high hopes 1960's the year for his high hopes Come on and vote for Kennedy Vote for Kennedy And we'll come out on top I for president, I for president, I for president, I for president You like I Frank Sinatra with High Hopes, adapted for John F. Kennedy's presidential campaign of 1960. And I Like Ike, a song in support of Dwight Eisenhower's 1952 bid for the US presidency by Irving Berlin. You're listening to Voice Box with me, Chloe Veltman. Brian Rosen, a Bay Area-based arts blogger and composer, is with me for a discussion about the songs of U.S. presidential campaigns. And don't forget that Voicebox is available as a free weekly podcast on iTunes, and you can find out all about the series on our website at voicebox-media.org. Those songs, they really hit you in the nose, don't they, Brian? There's nothing subtle... 
It's very straightforward, very catchy. What do you think about the whole idea of the hook as being an important feature of these presidential songs? Well, a hook is crucial. Um because you, know, you do want to get these things lodged into the brain, uh, and so they just stick with you. Uh, it's, and music has this sort of like rec- this receptor device. It's a way of sort of carrying messages in and sort of getting them into you. That's why advertising uses you know the jingles, and the, the slogans. But like do you that. think you could go too far? I mean, both of the songs we just heard are kind of annoying. I mean, I, I feel like they're going to create earworms for me. I'll probably have I like Ike in my head, uh, and he's got high hopes for the next few days, and it might just drive me crazy. Don't you think that would be a bit of a turnoff in a? Uh, for, for as far as vote, getting someone to vote for you? Yeah, you're definitely, you're, you're walking a fine line there between getting something which sticks in well enough to remind you to vote for that person and, and have good feelings about him. And then there's a feeling of like, oh my God, if I see this guy again, <laughs> I'm going to punch him in the face. It's, and that's a challenge thing. Like that happens, the same thing with campaign calls, the same thing with, you know, you see the same political ad over and over again, you get this saturation point. Uh, and it's hard to, it's hard to manage that because they want to make sure that everybody sees it, but they also don't want to make sure that that one person doesn't see it too much. It's it's a delicate balancing act. Now, it's handy for a presidential candidate to be endorsed by a famous singer or composer, but what happens when an artist objects to his or her song being co-opted by a political candidate during election season? Brian, there have been some occasions when artists and politicians have got into fights about the use and abuse of songs in election campaigns. Yeah, I mean, recently, even this campaign right now, there's the Silver Sun pickups uh, didn't want Mitt Romney to be using their song. uh, Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, uh, Paul Ryan is also having trouble with Rage Against the Machine and Twisted Sister, it's really, it's usually a Republican problem because uh, <laughs> it just just turns out that it, that most musicians end up being somewhat Democratic in their approach to things for some reason. Uh, and uh, almost all of them really object to it when a Republican sort of co-opts their song in any way, um, even just playing it at a rally. Uh, and and it's, it's unclear if there actually is any legal ground for the artist um you know to complain about it complain about it i mean if you when you write a song and you release it um people can you you can't pick and choose what venues it gets played at Mm -hmm. um you know it's it's sort of a compulsory license it's like okay you wrote a song you released it you can't say hey you're not allowed to play it at this building Mm -hmm. um but uh, usually rather, rather than sort of raise a big stink, the, the politicians usually say, okay, we'll just sort of cave in and not, not fight this fight. The other, the only, um, objection you could make is like, if you, if it's played in such a way to make it look like they're endorsing the candidate, mm-hmm. then they could say no. And if they use it in a commercial, um, or something like that, then they have to get permission. And if they change it at all, then they have to get permission. Right. Yeah. There've been some really very newsworthy examples of these kinds of cases, uh, in, fairly recent political history. Maybe I'd love to hear your thoughts about the the case of Soul Man and, and also uh, the infamous case of Bruce Springsteen's Born in the USA. Too. Yeah, well, that's a funny one. It's it, the, That whole sort of Born in the USA thing is so tone deaf that Reagan would use this thing. When you listen to the song at all, if you listen to the lyrics, it's not this big raw let's go America thing. It's this really sort of sad story of yeah. like a, a individual being abandoned by his country. And so I have no idea why in the world, you know, Reagan's people thought it would be a good idea to well, use they, that song. They weren't listening to the lyrics. Clearly not, right? Properly. They just sort of, they, they, they're like, hey, this Bruce Springsteen guy is popular and there's an American flag on the cover. We should use this guy. And it was just really sort of poorly thought out. And and Springsteen really objected to it. And so they had to stop. And now Soul Man is an interesting thing because... Um, it's actually one of the rare cases where a Democrat uh, was was not allowed to use it. Obama had been using it in his rallies, um, and it turns out that the uh, the original performer 
um, Sam David Moore of, of Sam and Dave objected to it and said, I don't want I don't want this song to be representing you, Obama. Um, and ironically, it was just like, you know, eight years earlier or, or however many years ago it was Bob Dole was using I'm a soul man for his campaign, except he'd changed the lyrics and he turned it into a, I'm a dole man, <laughs> which is kind of grown. Um, but but in that case, it wasn't the performer. It was actually the, the songwriter. David Porter objected to it, says, no, you're, you can't you can't change my lyrics. Um, so the soul man isn't able to be used by any parties. It's it's an apolitical song. I'm Chloe Veltman and this is Voicebox. We're talking about election songs tonight and my guest is the erudite composer and arts commentator Brian Rosen. Brian, in your opinion, are election songs today as powerful in terms of getting a candidate's view across as they used to be? Well, they definitely serve a different role. It's it's not so much getting a candidate's view across or um, spreading an idea about a candidate or the opposing candidate as like it was in the original days. Um, now it's much more about creating a soundtrack, um, creating a feeling. Uh, and so we have these... Um, songs that are almost always like very patriotic and 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 sometimes positive, right? I'm often positive. Uh, you look at what Bill Clinton did with like you know, don't stop thinking about tomorrow. It's like this big optimistic, hopeful thing. Yeah, as long as you don't listen too much about the lyrics that follow about like you know, we'll still be here and we're not going away. That sort of thing might not quite be what he wanted, but. Well, um, let's talk about this idea of creating an aura for a, a, a politician through song um, as opposed to hitting someone in the face with a direct vote for me message. Um, I'd like to turn our attention to the Obama girl phenomenon from the 2008 political season. Notably, this song um, is different from the other ones that we've looked at so far because it had nothing to do specifically with Obama's campaign office. It was the work of some fans of the politician. Ben Rellers and Rick Friedrich wrote the song, I've Got a Crush on Obama. Um, It was sung by vocalist Leah Kaufman, but the track arguably became viral on YouTube in 2007 owing to the American actress and model who lip-synced along to the song while cavorting about New York in very tight t-shirts and very short shorts. Amber Lee Ettinger, otherwise known as Obama Girl. Brian, what are your thoughts about the impact of Crush on Obama on the 2008 political campaign? Uh, it, it was kind of a bit of a game changer there. Um, and it's strange that it was this completely unaffiliated group uh, who put this video out there that became viral for, you know, one of the reasons that songs become viral on, or videos become viral because you've got a hot girl there. Um, and uh, it... it for the first time in quite a long time, we had uh, a presidential candidate who you would conceivably have a crush on. Um, and, uh, and and this sort of capitalized on that and sort of made people sort of think about Obama in a different way. Uh, so, I mean, I think it had a huge effect on, on his early campaign. Do you... So what do you know? What the Obama campaign made of the song? I, I mean, I, my understanding is that they they neither sort of endorsed it nor shied away from it. 
No, they, they, yeah, that's exactly what happened. They were completely unaffiliated. It was this, um, you know, actually I met these guys at the Webby Awards some years ago. They were really very nice people. The guys who wrote the song. Yeah, the guys who wrote the song and Obama Girl as well. We, we all had our picture taken with her. Um, and, uh, and, and they just wanted to get some website up there. They were trying to find anything that would be viral at all. Um, and, and, and the Obama campaign just had nothing to do with it. So, so it was really this sort of synergistic thing that just happened by chance. Uh, and they certainly, when you know, Obama, the Obama campaign certainly wasn't going to say, hey, don't do this, mm -hmm. uh, because it got so many eyes on, and, on the, the name Obama in so many mouths. Um, and they just sort of like, you know, benefited from it. You know, it's completely mm -hmm. coincidentally. Yeah. I mean, is it tantamount to an actual campaign song because of its popularity? Well, and then you sort of get into some gray areas here. Like, uh, is that political speech? Um, should that be monitored? If you, if, you know, if you were to go and and look at campaign finance rules, uh, should barely political have been considered a, a PAC committee or, or something like that, a political action committee? Um, yeah, I, you know, I think clearly not. I mean, they were an entertainment group, um, but it's definitely you know, depending on how campaign finance laws are written, it could be a gray area. Well, let's hear a taste of Crush on Obama now. Thank all of you for your time, your suggestions, your encouragement, and your prayers. And I look forward to continuing our conversation in the weeks and months to come. Hey B, it's me. If you're there, pick up. I was just watching you on C-SPAN. Anyway, call me back. You seem to float onto the floor. Democratic Convention 2004. You're tuned into Voicebox with me, Chloe Veltman. For full playlist information, please visit voicebox-media.org, where you can find all kinds of other useful stuff about our series, like free podcasts and the upcoming schedule. That was Crush on Obama, a song that fueled the 2008 presidential campaign, more for the sexiness of the actress-slash-model who lip-synced along to the melody than for the quality of the song or its political message. I'm in the studio with composer and blogger Brian Rosen, and we're chatting about the role and genesis of political campaign songs. Speaking of singing versus lip syncing, we're in an era now where it's not uncommon for politicians to sing in public. Brian, is public vocal performance from presidential candidates a new thing, or has it been going on for a while? And would Lincoln have been caught dead singing in public? Uh, it, if Lincoln was caught dead singing in public, he wouldn't have been recorded, so he might actually be able to get away with it. Um, <laughs> but you know, th these are the days where like you can't a, camp, a, a candidate can't do anything without being caught um, on video, and mm. so even sort of like these sort of asides or, or sort of half thought out things um, can have a major role in a campaign or mm -hmm. at least a, a news cycle and come back to bite you in the ass. <laughs> Um, so why might it be uh, an advantage in the current political climate for political candidates to show off their vocal abilities? Well, I think in this this latest dust up between uh, the voices of Romney and the voices of Obama uh, really illustrate two completely different approaches. Um, Obama, uh, when he's saying that, you know, that that one line from that great Al Green song um, he sounded great. He did. <laughs> I got to say. It was just a tiny bit, uh, but beautiful pipes. Huh? I was really impressed. And it, it made me immediately it made me immediately like him. I mean, I was like, "Oh, yeah, this guy's good. This mm -hmm. guy's got it together. This guy's awesome." Um 
And, uh, you know, and I think he knew he sounded pretty good. And, and, and you know, if you listen to Michelle Obama um, on Leno a couple of days later, she was like, oh, yeah, he always sings that song. That's, just, <laughs> that's sort of his go-to number. His karaoke uh, number. Yeah, yeah, that's totally his, his karaoke pick. And his Al Green songs in general. I mean, he's got that voice. He's got that great little tenor lilt right there, and he sounded great. And he did just enough of it, too. Um, there was just one line to show you, like, hey, you know, I've got this little skill that you probably didn't know anything about. Surprise. But now we're back to business. And I think that was, that was just perfect, right? Because you you sort of get this glimpse of like, oh, there's this whole other thing going on there. Mm-hmm. I, I found it really sort of endearing and compelling and, you know, certainly knew not to overstay his welcome. Right. So it did him some favors then. Now, what about Mitt Romney? Well, uh, you know, that's the other side of things. Mitt Romney clearly is not a singer. Uh, mm-hmm. yep. professional singer. I mean, he, he sort of was, we refer to that as a pitch locus there. Uh, no particularly, like the pitch was there. It was in the vicinity, um, you know, plus or minus a couple of dozen cents. Um, <laughs> and, you know, it was sort of, sort of flat and tuneless. It, it, it felt like your dad singing. Um, but that might not have been um, an accident. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, one thing you might want, if the, if the message is like, look, I'm a, I'm a regular dude like you. Right. I'm, I, I get together and I like seeing America and I don't do it particularly well. I'm not some superstar who gets up on the Apollo Theater and croons like Al Green. Um, I'm just a regular American. And that's frankly a message that I think Romney probably wants to be getting across mm-hmm. right now. Mm-hmm. Um, now, whether or not it, it worked in this case is, you know, in the, in the ear of the beholder, as it were. Uh, yeah, but I listen to that. I'm like, okay, yeah, I see what he's doing. Yeah. Um, you know, it's not the worst singing performance. It's not. It's not a painful singing performance. Right. It's sort of like, eh, that sort of average to bad, yeah. you know, singer. But he picked, you know, the right song to mm-hmm. put that wholesome bread and butter image across too. I yeah, mean, America a, the Beautiful. And it's a sing along too. He was singing sure. along. He was leading the the mm-hmm. the rest of the the campaign in a sing along. So you know, I, I wouldn't I wouldn't come down on him too hard. Um, you know, some people were saying like, "Oh God, this is awful. This is embarrassing." I'm like, "Oh come on, he's yeah. just he's singing America, and he doesn't do that well, but that's fine." Yeah. Well, so what are the downsides to being a politician who sings in public? Well, I think Romney's sort of finding that out now. I mean, like what he tried to do was sort of act like you know he's just another guy who can kind mm-hmm. of sort of sing. But you know, in contrast to um, you know Obama's performance, he just looked at he just ended up looking bad, yeah. um, and, and sort of got ridiculed and. You know, that ends up being what the, the news cycle is for the next couple of days. Yeah. That's the thing that people are going to play. That's the thing that people are going to be paying attention to. And um, I, I think in this case, it sort of did backfire on him. Yeah. I don't think it got the effect that he wanted it to have. Now, what about poor Hillary Clinton? Um, you know, there's sort of legendarily bad recordings on the Internet out there of her singing the national anthem. That was a fascinating case um, because it was so clearly candid. Right. This was a situation where she did not realize that the microphone was on. Mm. Um, and I think, uh, you know, that's a situation where you, you can't you can't blame them. It's not like she was like standing up like, OK, I'm going to sing the national anthem mm-hmm. and do it in this horrible horror. I mean, she she sounded horrible. No, very flat. And are, are, you gonna, are, you gonna, are we going to get to hear it? We'll I'm, hear it. Oh, good. That's something to look for. You guys are in for a treat. Um but, uh, but yeah, I mean, it's you can't blame her for it, right? Because th- I think sometimes you get a bit of an endearing thing. It's like, oh, that's not fair that you're sort of like listening to her private singing of the of the national anthem, and she's trying, and she mm-hmm. she must know that she's no good, but she's still singing it. Mm-hmm. And some people made a, a big deal of like, I think she got one word wrong. Um, mm-hmm. I think she said hour instead of um, Jose does hour. 
Star Spangled. I can't remember what I, I can't remember what it is. Um, but people came down on it pretty hard for like getting one word wrong. It's like, mm-hmm. oh, she doesn't even know the word for the national anthem. But people whatever. are very unforgiving. Yeah, and I suppose be. in a sense, I'm going to be unforgiving now by playing this little sample of Hillary uh, braying her way through the national anthem. That was Hillary Clinton attempting to sing the national anthem. So the saving grace for Hillary Clinton, Brian, was that it was not intended to be a big public statement. She was just singing along and didn't think that anyone could really hear her. Absolutely. Uh, and that's, you know, one of the dangers about you know, things being recorded and disseminated on the web all the time now is that you can't control these things from your past, like sort of popping up again. Mm-hmm. And that happened um, for Herman Cain uh, mm-hmm. during Republican his campaign. candidate, yeah. Because uh, he had done some sort of spoof uh, skit uh, for some convention um, years before he ever ran for president. And in it, they, he did some sort of spoof song about um, taking John Lennon's Imagine and singing about pizza, of <laughs> yeah, all things. That's right. What a strange song that is. It's a really strange song. It's a, it's a, it's a great performance. I mean, he's got a beautiful, a beautiful, voice, beautiful yeah. baritone, rich voice. Um, and, and I think they were just sort of like poking fun at his ties with the, you know, the, the fast food industry. Uh, but, but, you know, fast forward a couple of years when he's running a, a campaign for presidency and this sort of pops up on the Internet and you're like, who is this guy? <laughs> yeah. I mean, do you think that that was uh, advantageous, that performance of the pizza, pizza imagine for him? Or did it really set him back, do you think? I, this is one I don't think had that much of an effect Um uh, on the campaign. I mean, the whole thing was sort of kind of a little bit unhinged anyway. Um, but it, it sure makes for a great bit of video watching. <laughs> yeah, and we're going to hear that song at the end of the show. So stay tuned. But Brian, before we go, I have one more question for you. Where do you think this interesting marriage between song and presidential political campaigning is headed? Do you think there'll always be election songs or have we gotten to the point where they've become so tangential and sort of superfluous to the campaign processes to eventually become extinct? Well, I think at, at the very least, the rallies need to have some soundtrack. And I think any any sort of packaged um, media event needs to have a soundtrack. Uh, it's just such an important part of of how we communicate with each other at this point. So I don't see election songs going away. Uh, I, I don't think I think the day of sort of custom written election songs having a central point in a, a central focus in a campaign that those are probably gone away. Um, but I think there will always be a role for them to sort of set the tone for a campaign. Well, thank you so much, Brian, for being such a wonderfully knowledgeable and fun guest as usual. Thank you, Chloe. Voicebox is an independently produced non-profit project recorded at the studios of KALW in San Francisco. The series producer is Seth Samuel and the web editor is Victoria Lim. If you'd like to find out more about Voicebox, please visit our website at voicebox-media.org and you can write to us anytime at info at 
voicebox-media.org. And we need your support. Please become part of Voicebox's inner circle of vocal music lovers by setting up an ongoing pledge for as little as $5 a month or give a one-time gift. Donating to Voicebox is safe, easy and tax-deductible through our online PayPal link. Or, by all means, send us a cheque. Here's one more track from the annals of campaign song history. Republican candidate Herman Cain's surreal take on the John Lennon classic, Imagine. Have a songful week. Imagine there's no pizza I couldn't if I tried Eating only tacos Or Kentucky Fried 